the gospel reading, Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 37. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give no more light and the stars will fall from heaven and the power in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You see, from the fig tree, we learn this lesson. As its branches become tender and put forth its leaves, you know then that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But no, these words will not. But about that day or about that hour, nobody knows when it's going to happen, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So beware, keep alert, for we do not know when the time will come. In some ways, it's like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves his home and he puts those whom he has enslaved in charge puts each one at their work, and he commands them at the door to be on watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. And you don't want him finding you asleep when he comes suddenly. And so, what I say to you, I shall say to all, keep awake. Keep awake. The word of the Lord. To God be the glory for the wonderful things that God has done. It is such a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you, Pinnacle Presbyterian Church, on behalf of the Board of Trustees, faculty, staff, students of Princeton Theological Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey. We bring you greetings this morning. It is an honor as the newly inaugurated president to make my tours and to engage with congregations like you, congregations who share the work, who share our mission alignment, who are focused on training and forming faithful Christian disciples. This is who you are. 
when we look at your incredible staff here, led by Dr. Abram, and whether it's Dr. Hegeman or Reverend Kuberian, Reverend Quarles, all of these extraordinary alums of our institution, I'm beginning to think of this community as Princeton Seminary West. And to the contrary, uh, I hope not at all that you would blame Princeton Seminary, but you would thank Princeton Seminary. <laughs> that you would thank Princeton Seminary, uh, just as we so appreciate you. And we view ourselves as partners in this work and it's mutually beneficial insofar as your support of us is a support of Pinnacle Presbyterian Church. To the degree that who knows, that your next pastor, your next family, family uh, minister, your next adult education minister might be sitting in one of our classrooms right now. And therefore, we continue to prepare the next generation of faithful Christian servants. And we're so thankful to each and every one of you. And also, it's just wonderful to be here. The last time I was with you, I was actually a member of the Board of Trustees at Princeton Theological Seminary. And it was in January 2020 that we actually worshipped here in this church. And I tell you, uh, any time that you need a preacher between the months of December and February... <laughs> I know a guy. <laughs> the scripture, the lectionary text for the day, we've read it for your hearing. And I was tasked with answering a question. What's next? What's next for the church? What's next for our society? What's next for communities of faith? What's next for theological education and I have decided to come at this and wrestle with this question uh, by offering a warning and that is when I think about what's next the warning is for us to consider this morning the underside of hope the underside of hope or the opposite of hope Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I need your help. Amen. My friends, there's an interesting book by British journalist Ruth Whitman. It's entitled, America the Anxious how the pursuit of happiness is creating a nation of nervous wrecks. In this work, Whitman seeks to unravel what she identifies as the quintessentially American phenomenon, or our seeming obsession with happiness and positivity. By some accounts, it's an $11 billion industry in our nation. 
There are over 1,000 apps in the App Store that promise to keep us positive and to make us happy. There are countless seminars, conferences, retreats designed to help us unleash our inner Tony Robbins smile. And we live in a world, more specifically, we live in a nation where pastors, rabbis, and imams have given way to life coaches. And communities of faith have been supplanted by wellness centers. Yet Ruth Whitman's book unveils the paradox of this American positivity. For the data shows that the more we spend trying to deflect the dark realities with positive platitudes, the more we attempt to blunt heartbreak with feel-good mantras, and the more we embrace self-care as an article of faith in attempts to vaccinate ourselves from the inevitable vacillations and vicissitudes of life the more Americans seem to be experiencing higher levels of depression, despair, and despondency. Philosophers and psychotherapists might argue that we try to protect ourselves by refusing to know ourselves. We would rather project positive illusions than confront harsh realities. Embrace simplistic sophomoric lies, then confront difficult truths. We fall prey to the heresies of certainty. I'm in control. We know what is right. We are the agents of justice. And as a result, we delude ourselves to the fact that there are just some things in life that you and I will never know. There's some grim realities that we will never understand. In this life, no matter how smart we are, there are some occurrences that we will never be able to explain. Maybe this is why New York Times columnist Ross Duthat posed this provocative question in one of his columns. He's asked this question. He said, can the meritocrats find God? In other words, in a culture where the American professional class is so committed to a moral vision of self-directed choice, in a society that emphasizes individual power to claim the good life for eudaimonia, there's no room for religious faith that allows for contradictions and hypocrisies. And there's no room for a church that asks us to embrace and endure the chilly winters of human suffering. Oh, recall the words of Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. Mind you, Jesus didn't say that you might have trouble. Jesus didn't say you may have trouble. He said that you will have trouble. And if you and I live long enough, and as my mother would say, if you live well enough, each one of us has to make peace with the fact that we cannot explain the inexplicable, make sense of the nonsensical, or inoculate ourselves from the tragic dimensions of this thing called life. Sometimes 
We have to have the courage to just be able to sit and say life sucks sometimes. This is what today's gospel lesson is about. How do we confront harsh realities? How do we interrogate difficult truths? The writer of Mark here is speaking into a community crumbling under the feet of iron oppression. Yet the author is also attempting to help the community in their suffering by gaining a different perspective informed by their faith. Oh, yes, there will be suffering, the author acknowledges. Yes, the moon will go dark and it will appear that the sky is falling. Yes, we must endure harsh winters of stress and strife. This should not, however, lead us to despair. Now is not the time to give up. Now is not the time to throw in the towel. Now is not the time to cling to your own perceived sense of power. But rather, it's time to anticipate the coming of the one in whom our faith and our hope is built. The writer encourages the community. It's time to get ready. These are the themes of Advent. Advent is about anticipation. We are anticipating the birth of the Christ child. We're preparing ourselves for the coming of the one Isaiah foretold. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall rest upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Get ready. And in a world where shadows of conflict and turmoil loom large, from the ongoing war in Ukraine to the civil unrest in Myanmar, to the suffering born of horrific terrorist attacks in Israel and the rising death toll and mass displacement in Gaza born of Israel's response. These words from Isaiah resonate with a profound and urgent call. They remind us of the core tenets of our faith, hope, healing, redemption, and reconciliation. They should also remind us that our anticipation of the coming of Christ is not and should not be a passive endeavor. It's active anticipation. Watch, wait, stay on your post. We're called not just to wait, we're called to prepare to ready our hearts and our minds for the coming of Christ, the embodiment of divine hope and everlasting peace. Just as seasonal rain showers ultimately give way to spring flowers, this is only true when we till, plant, and thus prepare for the forthcoming of something more beautiful. For instance, this is what we're doing at Princeton Theological Seminary. Our mission echoes the spirit of Advent, hope engendered through preparation. 
For we are committed to preparing faithful servants for ministries characterized not just by academic rigor, but by a deep abiding compassion, a relentless pursuit of knowledge, and an unyielding dedication to producing agents of hope and healing in a world in desperate need. This is why in every lecture, in every classroom, in every discussion, in every moment of quiet reflection and fervent prayer, in every conversation in the dining hall, Princeton Seminary is preparing those who will carry forth the message of redemption and reconciliation into a fallen and fractured world, just like here in this congregation. We're shaping the minds and the hearts of those informed by the teachings of this Jesus, the Christ. And to be informed by the life and teachings of Jesus Christ means that we have faith and hope even in the face of doubt and uncertainty. Too many of us, my friends, have accepted the myth that the opposite of hope is some kind of heartbreak rather than understanding that tragedy and heartbreak constitute the soil from which hope ultimately blooms. This is what the writer of Mark is trying to convey. It's only when it's dark outside can you and I truly see the stars. Similarly, there are those who believe that the opposite of faith is doubt. This is why some of us believe that we must project confidence and positivity at all times. But I'm here to remind somebody that the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. Remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So let me be clear, this is not faith or hope in, based upon our own virtue, nor is it hope in our capacity to bring about righteousness from our own power or from our own positive mantras. If we believed so in this tragic world defined by sin, such a naive sentimentality would ultimately propel all of us into a downward spiral of despair. Rather, it is our hope in the one. Our hope in the one with the ultimate power to deliver and our faith to live our lives according to this hope in Jesus Christ. Even when the evidence points to the contrary. This is the thing that should give us spiritual buoyancy in our lives. For in the words of the great theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, you and I must be saved by faith. And nothing however virtuous we may think it might be, can be accomplished by any one of us alone. Therefore, we must be saved by love. And so when I think about the 
future of the church, the future of theological education. I've come to increasingly believe that we must resist a culture of control that undercuts hope. We must resist this underside of hope, which is nothing more in my view than epistemic arrogance that becomes so confident in our own power, in our own power of positivity, that we don't leave room for heartbreak and sadness. Like the happiness industry in our nation, our churches go awry when we make joy and satisfaction all about the self. Joy, Happiness, fulfillment, do not emerge from some sort of self-mastery or mere personal growth. No, as human beings, we are all interrelated. It's about the self in relationship to others. For another's material needs constitutes our, my spiritual needs. Or Mother Teresa put it this way. If you and I have no peace, it's because we have forgotten that we belong to one another. Yes, my friends, fulfillment, it depends on other people. Maybe this is why most studies show that religious people tend to be happier and feel more fulfilled than non-religious people. According to research from the Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University, those who actively participate within a community of faith tend to have higher levels of engagement with their communities, with other people. They're more likely to volunteer time helping others, visiting with friends, supporting their communities, and providing for people in need. And I would posit, that these are indeed the features of a happy and a healthy life. And these are the ways that we can prepare ourselves by creating the world that you and I want to see, not in spite of human suffering, for amidst the clamor of loneliness and despair, guess what? We can embrace human suffering by embracing one another and in the process find hope, joy, Love manifest. Ah, oh, this is our opportunity. An opportunity to contribute to a cause, an opportunity to raise our voices, an opportunity to serve with hearts of grace and hands of compassion. This is what it means to prepare as we wait. As I prepare to take my seat, a few years ago, a German grocery store aired a heart-wrenching commercial during the holiday season. The commercial showed an old man coming home with a handful of groceries. When he entered his home, he heard the voice of his daughter on the answering machine. She was letting her father know that her family could not make it this year for Christmas. Then the commercial proceeds to show the elderly man sitting alone eating dinner. He's shown in several different outfits. One suspect that it was trying to signify that it been, had been years since the children have returned home. 
The next Christmas, the children received a telegram stating that their beloved father had passed away. We see them then shutting down their busy big city lives to return to the small country town for the funeral. They enter the house to find the house beautifully decorated and a feast spread across the table. And then the father enters the room. <laughs> and he asks, how else could I have brought you all together? And it ends with a family full of joy and love, enjoying a beautiful feast. Now, Pinnacle Presbyterian, my point is not to plant any ideas in anyone's head about how to emotionally blackmail your family members this holiday season. But my point is to offer this. In the words of Emily Dickinson, behavior is what a human being does, not simply what we think, feel, or believe. So if you and I believe in the coming of hope, if we believe in the coming of love, if we believe and have faith in the compassion through Christ, then let's behave accordingly. There's no need to wait. Let's prepare. Let's act while we have time. Let the church say, Amen.